Indeedy, welcome to the Up Full Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 11, coming at you live and direct from Oakland, California, giving thanks for all tuning in. middle of February now. I'm about to turn 41 years old. Kind of crazy to think about. And uh, we've got episode 11 coming at you. Really stoked about lots of the feedback and interactions I've been having uh, with regards to the podcast. And uh, Shout out to the amazing Jeffrey Dupuis, who's uh, just engrossing and fascinating and heart-filling interview last week, or excuse me, last episode, uh, really touched a lot of folks out there in different uh, avenues of uh, the music scene and the recovery scene and just the culture. Um, So little by little, we're growing this podcast. We're uh, almost at 1,400 downloads now, which is pretty cool, and I want to say thanks to everybody out there for uh, check it in and listening and sending me words of encouragement. Um, it's been an amazing ride thus far and we've only just begun. So yeah, I want to take a moment and uh, just briefly thank uh, the Spirit of Swanee Music Park, uh, who we often thank here. Uh, just today released a small festival announcement, uh, kind of a throwback to the ethos and vibe of our beloved Bear Creek, which took place there for eight years. This is called Swanee Rising. Uh, I think the intention and the sort of uh, subtle, you know, idea behind it all is that they're bringing it back to the old school roots of like a Bear Creek funk fest, including the music of the likes of Bear Creek veterans like Lettuce, who are playing two sets. You're hearing their Nashville show in the background right now from January 25th. The lettuce, you know, this is a big lettuce house, big lettuce pod, and uh, we're stoked to go back to Swanee with lettuce. Also, new master sounds are playing twice. Ghost Note also playing twice. Bear Creek alumnus Dumpster Funk, uh, Mo will be there, uh, O'Teal and friends, and uh, others who um, to be announced. But that's April four, five, six at the Spirit of Swanee Music Park. Um, there's been a lot of chatter about Swanee and. Halloween and well, the cancellation of Wani or discontinuing of Wani, I should say. Um, 
So it'll be good to just get all the, the homies back together and get let us on that amphitheater stage, which is their throne, and just get the vibes right. Um, we're looking forward to the future of all the festivals there. Purple Hatter's Ball, Halloween, and hopefully one day uh, they will bring back our beloved Bear Creek. But for now, just want to say thank you for the Swanee, uh, Swanee Rising Festival at Spirit of Swanee Music Park, April 4, 5, and 6. Check them out online. Um, check us out at the Lettuce Fan Club on Facebook. Um, you can always hit up the Up Full Life podcast by hitting me up direct at b.gets at upfullife.com. Um, been getting some cool correspondence from folks there. Uh, random folks from my from my past, people I went to middle school and high school with and college and all the way up through people that I've worked with in the furniture industry through the years. Um, cats that, of course, I know through the music scene. And Yeah, I just want to shout out some of my uh, the homies out there listening. My man Micah, who I worked with in the hills up here in uh, the Ganja Farms in Northern California. So shout out Micah. Shout out to Peter out there in Scotland. Shout out to my man Jimmy in the SRQ, who is going to make the trek down to Swanee, it sounds like. Um, he's a crucial listener to the Up for Life podcast, so just want to shout him out. Always shout out Mike Kerr, Matt Beck. I could go on, but those are some of the uh, you know regulars that always seem to check in, no matter who the guest I have on the show is. And also shout out my boy J.A., uh, people were really into our last powwow that we had about the Stones and Jazz Fest and so forth. So yeah, uh, really, really uh, empowered and emboldened to do some more uh, cool shit with the Up Full Life podcast. Now we're out to episode 11, and um, I've got Jeff Franca otherwise known as Congo Sanchez, the drummer of Thievery Corporation. He also fronts uh, the Congo Sanchez Project. He's an all-star drummer in a number of groups out of Denver in that burgeoning music scene that we always talk about. But he's a DC guy. He's a uh, 18th Street Lounge guy. He's a funk arc guy. He's a CI guy. He is a Thievery Corp to the core. Um, so we get into all of that. Um, we get into deep into jazz drumming and the, and the essence, late fifties, the icons, and how that, uh, how those guys really formed his style and approach and thinking. And we touch on some jam band stuff and some biscuit stuff, some fish stuff, but really stay hard in the, in the jazz and the bop, hard bop and and uh, organ trio jazz, all kinds of really classic traditional stuff and and we also get deep on the personal tip uh jeff and i uh brought together due to uh death of our mutual friend uh ryan dewitt who was uh many things to many people but one of haddonfield new jersey's finest uh, is a manager for a number of skate teams most famously the element skate team um he was always up in all that shit you saw in like Jackass and CKY before that shit even became national, you know. Um, but that's not why, you know, we mentioned him just because he was a great soul and, a, and just a quality human. And uh, he passed away while I was incarcerated. And uh, I talk about that a little bit with Jeff and we talk about Ryan a little bit and we talk about uh, Jeff's late brother Nicholas 
Franca, who passed away uh, at a young age, and how Jeff spent the end of Nicholas's life with him, and how that brought him from college to New York City, uh, and how he would spend his days uh, at his brother's bedside, and his nights chasing the iconic New York drummers of the day and today, uh, like uh, a friend of the show, Adam Deitch. Um, among others, we talk about John Zorn and the New York downtown jazz scene. And then finally get into uh, Thievery and his long and winding road and path to being the drummer of Thievery Corporation. How that closely and spiritually intertwined with um, the end of his brother's life and their uh, Virgo-Sagittarius bond. How that transmitted into relationships between Jeff and his band members, now family members. Uh, it was really, really heavy, heady stuff, and I was uh, blown away that Jeff just took it there with me on a real personal level, and I was blown away by the confidence he had in me to allow the conversation to go where it did. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to do a whole lot of talking this week. I'm just going to play the interview uh, momentarily. Uh, it's about an hour and a half long. Um, we finish up with a bunch of stuff about his current solo uh, endeavors outside of thievery, like Congo Sanchez and living in Denver. We also talk about it, his partnership, um, relationship, and how that intertwines with the, the thievery band on the road. Um, there's just a lot to unpack with Jeff, so we're going to get to it. I'm going to play a little thievery first, and then uh, we'll hear from Jeff. And then after that... Um, I'm going to play a second shorter interview and then the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. So, Jeff Franca, a.k.a. Congo Sanchez of Thievery Corporation, recorded uh, here in San Francisco on New Year's Eve day. This is the Upful Life Podcast. I am your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy. This is the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and I am 
uh, talking to you from downtown San Francisco, just off the bay, in a lovely spot uh, by the Stanford Court. My guest this afternoon is Jeff Franca, who's a drummer of Thievery Corporation and the man behind Natural Selecta, Congo Sanchez. So thanks for uh, making some time for us. My pleasure, brother. My pleasure. Yeah, man. It's a long time in the making, and <clears throat> I've been looking forward to this. We've been trying to coordinate for a second here, yeah. and it's... It's New Year's Eve, so you got a show tonight uh, with Thievery at the Masonic, which we're all looking forward to. Uh, have you gonna, done a New Year's show with Thievery before? We, yeah. Uh, it's not every year. Well, actually, I think it has been every year, but um, it's kind of been more of a one-off thing in the past. Like, I think we've done, we did like the Vail Hockey Rank one year with DJ Logic and some other band and... Um, Last year we had the anthem and was a big opening of the anthem last year, which I think first year out they got the pole star, more, most tickets sold for an indoor venue, which is just Seth at his at his finest over there. But uh, yeah, we're usually busy during New Year's, um, and this this time two nights in San Francisco, so can't beat it. Right on. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the anthem. I've been hearing that name of that venue pop up in like every circle of you know, scene or whatever. What can you tell us about it? It's a new venue in D.C. It's like super Yeah, super so D.C. <clears throat> is basically run... There's obviously the Live Nation uh, presence there, which is everywhere, Fillmore's and, and this and that. Uh, but our grassroots hometown uh, promotion team or whatever is IMP, and they own Merriweather... 930 Club, Lincoln Theater, Seth Hurwitz, who was involved basically in, from a very early time with Thievery, as a mentor to our, our, our manager. Uh, they worked together back in the day, Starscape, all the Baltimore stuff, anything basically that happened independently in the, in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area was either IMP or something corporate like Live Nation. So Anthem is the new IMP venue, and they just put a 6,000-person room in Southwest D.C., and this new really hip-slash-gentrified area of D.C. Um, and uh, it's kind of an oxymoron, but regardless... I knew what you meant. Seth is continuing his prowess of live music in that area, and it's huge congrats to him. With with um, you know with the history that we have with them and how much they've believed in thievery and our surrounding projects, you know, it's really good to see him have another great place. Right on, yeah, man. Um, so New Year's there last year. New Year's here at the Masonic, and you had said to me earlier before we started taping that uh, thievery's been on the road pretty much non-stop, give or take a day or two here and there since early October. Yeah. So where did this tour take you? Places of note or shows of note you yeah. want to reflect on? Um, well, mostly of note were places that we hadn't been for. Birmingham, Alabama, we went to for the first time. Uh, where else did we go for the first time on this tour? Grand Rapids, Michigan. Maybe they had been there in the past before I was in the band, but... Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're doing this longer fall run, um, which for me is great because, you know, 
once you start touring, the end, the time that happens between when you start and when you stop doesn't really happen. It's just like good times, travel, you know, and then and then you get into three months later, it's New Year's already, and you're like, oh well, let's turn turn the sheets over and start another year, you know. Right. It's just good to be busy. Yeah, yeah, it's a good problem to have, I suppose. But yeah, definitely makes for uh, it's hard on on the body and the health and hard on relationships, I imagine. Yeah. Um, well, my my most important relationship is the one I have with my significant other, who happens to be my tour manager. So, uh, so we have, uh, you know, it's uh, an obvious double-edged sword. Um, we can cut through the good times, and then you know, honestly, it's not. It's not really the uh, mixing of the two that is hard. It's just, as a tour manager, she's really busy. And I have, like, you know, more time to kind of fuck around during the day and, you know, go mess with her and flirt and shit like that. And, you know, she's just got a lot of stuff to do. So I just take my time, you know. Right on. Let her do her thing. It's a nice practice in a relationship to see your partner in, in their environment, you know. Not everybody gets to be around their partner while they do what it is they do, you know, to bring food on the table or, you know, to to appease their love for existence. So it's, it's cool. Yeah, that's an awesome arrangement to have. Yeah, you know. Right on, man. Not so you bad. were talking about D.C. and, you know, even though I podcast is out of Oakland and we're talking from San Francisco, I'm from the Philly area. You're from D.C. We share some friends from home. So let's talk about your roots back there a little bit, maybe even pre-thievery. Mm-hmm. When did you start playing drums to begin with? I started playing drums when I was about eight or nine. Um, before then, I had this set of like Mickey Mouse um, boxes that kind of fit all in into each other like a Russian doll. And I would... I would wrap them around me and play them with my Tinker Toys when I was a kid. <laughs> you remember Tinker Toys? Sure. Yeah, so so that was pretty much my first like melodic set of things you hit was a Mickey Mouse boxes. And I started guitar when I was six. I had like a guitar recital when I was six for I think I played like Yesterday by the Beatles and uh, Runaway Train by Collective Soul. I think Collective Soul. Uh, that was Soul, Asylum. Soul Asylum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just talking about Soul Asylum. Dave Perner still plays in New Orleans, that dude, solo. Like, oh, yeah. Random, obscure, like DBA on the off day at Jazz Fest. So Soul Asylum, what was their other... T- it was Runaway Train, yeah. and there was one they more. They had another... Album. Like, I think three big songs on that album, but it escapes me right now. Yeah, I'm it was like 90s spiritual grunge. Yeah, yeah, he was like a dready sort of grunge yeah. guy. Probably very much psychedelic back yeah. into that well he took whatever monies he made from that and decamped to New Orleans for a long time and just kind of played the clubs I don't know what Dave Perner's up to right now maybe he'll hear this and check in but yeah let's uh, do a band <laughs> right on <laughs> so what were you what were you uh, you were saying uh, those were some of the stuff you started playing on early but what was some of the music that like first like reached you on a real deep or spiritual or profound level even at 8, 9, 10 um, at that age it was a lot of um you know, I had all... I grew up with Floyd on vinyl. I had Umaguma on vinyl. I had Obscured by Clouds on vinyl. And then obviously, like, the metal, the animal, like, animals and <clears throat> stuff like that. 
but as far as like parental like you know transfer of musical existence Floyd was big from my dad's side and then like Jody Mitchell would be like the one from my mom and they just had vinyl records laying around so you could vinyl and, and a lot of CDs right and tapes you know I mean you know growing up we all had like the vinyl tape CD all in one type right of, right you could record the vinyl onto the blank record the CD that, onto the tape exactly right, it was right. great um, what was like the first band or bands that you found on your own terms um <clears throat> nothing that like ended up being one of my like biggest influences as far as like full obsession but when I first was buying tapes it's like I bought Doggy Style on tape sure I, I had um um I mean, that record's Blood Sugar Sex Magic on tape. Both of those are. You know, I you know I had what else did I have on tape? Um, just you know, I think I had like five tapes that I bought at TJ Maxx. I can't remember what what they all right were. Well, those two are timeless. You know, right totally, there. Totally, totally. Um, especially you know, Doggy Style. Yeah. I mean, that because that's kind of opened up the P Funk vault. And as a kid, you don't realize it. You're right. hearing all these riffs and, and this whole thing, and then you're like, oh. And then you get in. Then it, for me, it's kind of been like a retrospective kind of musical existence where, like, you know, for example, like we were talking about right before, you know, you're asking about, you know, jam bands and whatnot. It's like improvisation. It's like, well, when I stopped getting really more interested in jam bands, it was when I became more interested in jazz. Because right. I was like, oh, okay, so like this one part of what I like about this music is mainly the improv part. Like, right. you know, the lyrics sometimes were not super profound or the vocals weren't that great. You know, like some of our favorite jam bands, like they pride themselves on, well, you know, the rawness is the essence, you right. know. But then I was like, but my real, what I really love is the musical communication of like this idea and, oh, it kind of goes off into it and then comes back and like there's, some benchmarks along the way that check in right. where are we all here and so like you know <clears throat> by the time I was 18 19 20 all that had turned into an obsession of jazz and specifically like traditional jazz or well Coltrane continue, continuing the retrospective move it was like I bought you know Miles in the Sky and Bitches Brew in a silent way all the stuff that and I was in, big into organ jazz, Jimmy Smith, and anything that was not the jazz that I knew, right? Growing up, which was the Max Roach, the Philly Joe, Brubeck. you know, obviously Brubeck, because right. if you grow up in you know the public schools and you know, pretty much you know, somewhat diverse, but you know, white kids learning jazz, right. it's like they're gonna teach you know, to take five, yeah, right they're gonna away. teach you know, it's like something about learning, you know from people that look like you, you know, oh. to start out, you know, yeah. is, is, is a teaching style. But but regardless, yeah, you always learn Take 5, you know. But 1959 was the year that that album came out, Time Out. Same year Shape of Jazz to Come came out. Same year Kind of Blue came out. Right. You know, it was basically like the, the 91 of, the, of, of right, jazz. There was a Bill Evans record that year, too. Pianist, that was a pretty big record. Doesn't matter, but that's when I think uh, of Well, yeah, I mean, the Bill Evans record in 59. Bill Evans was on Kind of Blue. Right on. So I'm trying to think of what the trio record would have been. I'm not sure if he had a trio in 59 yet. I can't remember. 
But like in '91, the same on the same day, never mind Blood Sugar Sex Magic and uh, Low End Theory came out like September 22nd, all on the same day in 1991. Such cultural touchstones. And like '59 was like the same. It was like right. you had Ornette Coleman, Miles Davis, Brubeck, you know, all these albums. Out to Lunch, Eric Dolphy, I think, came right. out too that year. That's that early. I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. So. Wow. So, so you're talking about just like. Poof, so you kind of dove into the jazz world with the same fer- fervor that you would have had for jam bands and stuff like that when you were younger, but now yeah. it was retroactive and such a deeper well, you know? It's funny because I similarly, like, it was, like, through hip-hop that I got into, like, funky jazz. Like, mm-hmm. you're talking about organ jazz, the Grand Ruben Wilson. Yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah. Grant Green, exactly. And then, and Scofield. also... Well, yeah, even Schofield... It's, I knew about Schofield a little bit from the Miles stuff, just the name on the album jacket and stuff, but it took the Medeski album, a go-go, that they did with Scove to land Scove in my lap, and then I kind of worked retroactively and got into some of his earlier stuff, and then he started working with Deitch, and then it was like, okay. Yeah. But um, for me, it was like the funky jazz, and then and I found that almost as much through hip-hop as I did through like the Grey Boys, because like they're playing... In 97, 98, I'm 19 years old in Burlington, Vermont. And they're like, yeah, this is a Reuben Wilson tune. This is a Grant Green tune. You know, this is early internet. So mm-hmm. I'm like logging on dial-up. Kazaa. Like the, just typing in Grant <laughs> Green to AOL. Kazaa was huge. Kazaa was huge. Yeah. Was, anyway, I, I feel you on that process. And I, I didn't know you were that learned of a jazz head where you can just reel off the records that came out in what years and who played on what. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I got to that point where... It's, it, you know, there's, we all experience this, you know, and whatever scene, you know, you're in, and, you know, where you go through times where, like, you're obsessed with something, and then, like, a week later, you're kind of turning your nose up at it, because, like, you've found some sort of deeper, like, oh, well, the reason, you know, you want to tell your friends, you don't realize why you like this, you like this because of this, this is what they were listening to, right. you know, and, like, you get on that, like, tip and like obviously as we all get older you know we all know certain things you know not nobody knows everything right. some cats know a lot you know but like uh for me it was always having a need for like psychedelic uh, a trippy part of a song funk to me is trippy because of the groove you know just like straight up groovy shit is like just in- induces some sort of like you know response in me so to get back to that, you know, ride cymbal based, you know, left hand comping jazz took me a while to go through and realize, oh, well, 10 years before this record, Tony Williams was playing on Seven Steps to Heaven, and, you know, this was right before Miles got the second quintet together where Tony was the drummer, but like Victor Feldman was still involved in that record. Uh, you know, I think Herbie only played on half that record. You know, it was just just right before that whole you know Miles Coltrane or, or Miles Shorter and Ron Carter, Herbie and Tony quintet, and that record is like some of the most straight ahead you can you can hear Tony playing. You know, as a young 18, 19 year old kid, and then you then you know then you have ESP and Nefertiti and all these records that come out, and you're just like, wow, like he is just totally changed the game of, of drumming but then you listen to lifetime and it's just like straight ahead like arena rock jazz right. that like 20,000 japanese pm vsop quintet and all that stuff right. 
I used to have that on cassette. That dude, dude, concert. that shit is incredible. Yeah. In, live in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, and it's nuts. And he's got like eight toms, and you know, and it's like. Yeah. So like being a drummer, you're like you know the idiot in me is like this is cool because of this, and then you're like all right, well, where did this come from, you know? And then you start taking a bigger look at it, and you're like wow, like this solo on Seven Steps to Heaven is one of the most melodic things I've ever heard, you know, just right right off the bat, one one chorus of drums, you know? Right. Just, that's you, it, just one, you know? Do you hear that the first time, or do you need all that context to understand it, to then hear it in that melodic sense? The older I get, the more context of, you know, the less I need to, like, convince myself of shit. Right. I just know more now what I'm into, or, like, or I can hear something and be like, I get that. I get that, you know. Uh, but when I was younger, yeah, you know, I guess like any young person, especially because my parents, as hip as they are, like they're cool because they have open mind and they had a cool record collection, but they're not like hipping me to bands like Roxy Music and like getting me into like weirder stuff that I got into later through my friends, right. you know, who like were mad heady or like maybe their dad was like a little more into weirder music and, and, and or more of the, you know, post-art punk shit or whatever it would be, you know, I was, whatever I had at my fingertips, I knew very well. But it wasn't like the headiest collection ever. You know, right. it was just like, you know. Whatever was on your radar. Yeah, in. you know, whatever I could pull out of the living room cabinet, you know. What were some other cats besides Tony that like really you can you can hold in that same high regard as far as uh well you know tony williams took took like the role of the drums and really you know how it is when your favorite band all improvises together and nobody's soloing sure so tony to me was kind of the first drummer that could be soloing while accompanying and not sound like he's soloing, you know, when the group co, you know, co right. uh, coalesces like that, where it's like everybody's soloing right now, but nobody's soloing, they're improvising together. So like <clears throat> that to me, he's like kind of the first cat that like took the drums out to that, to that level, right. you know, because before the, before that, like, I mean, even like the shape of jazz to come, which is 59, Billy Higgins is on that record and he's grooving along but he ain't doing anything crazy because it's like yo look if you're gonna present free jazz and you just present like some crazy Albert Eiler shit right off the bat you might not get a second call back for like that gig you know what I mean but if you present free jazz in a way where you're like it doesn't sound different but do you mean they're making it up or like there's like just one theme and then a theme later and there's freedom in between or like all this stuff you know so completely different approach especially because out to lunch that Tony Williams is on 59 um, is a way more angular approach to the drumming you know more melodic and more of like a an independent role versus just like the bed right you know so Billy Higgins Tony Williams Philly Joe going back I mean the, the first the Coltrane quintet right I transcribed Salt Peanuts uh, like for a chorus and a half one time and it just I couldn't finish like I was like this is just too much you know but like Philly's playing and that's early right 
Yeah, that's that's 50, 58, 57. That's in like all the steam and relaxing, you know, um, I forget which one that's on. Bye Bye Blackbird era. It's it's <clears throat> Red Garland, Percy Heath, Philly Joe Jones, John Coltrane, and Miles Davis, you know. And it's Coltrane before his big like mental, you know, Expansion. revelation. Yeah. Um, and you're here, like, it's just like anything, like, you know, when you hear your favorite moment of a song, and then all of a sudden that moment becomes a whole new song in itself, like, that's like what happened in that time. It was like, oh, wow, they did this pedal tone on, like, the bridge, and then built up this tension, and then smacked, the, not even the one on coming back, smacked the two. <laughs> or something you know and like whoa like they're really playing with the understanding that they know what's going on so they can fuck with it that's that's like a that's that's a renaissance period for any art or music when when like the small part that was trippy becomes a whole song a year later like oh that was dope let's write a whole song like that you know yeah. that four bars is like now let's just do that four bars forever like that's what started happening in jazz too where it's like let's take these ideas and make them longer let's do modal jazz you know instead of giant steps let's do impressions you know it's just the, think about two chord changes you know born like, out of that yeah like the revolution right down to like beastie boys check your head you know reggae i mean reggae yeah, yeah. i mean it's just like just the idea of like let's grab those four bars yeah. and run with it exactly make that Sampling, the song, yeah yeah instead know? of going all over the place harmonically and all this it's like just build the groove that's the awesome you really articulated that well too um so yeah, so Tony, Billy Higgins, Philly Joe Jones. At what point in time do you get out of Elvin, this Elvin Jones, right? Max. Max, yeah, I mean, but Max, when you grow up, Max is so... He, he's not accessible in a way that is like, you know, you think you can play Max, and then you sit down and try to play it, and you're like, oh, this is a little more intricate than I thought. Same thing with Jimmy Cobb on Kind of Blue. Kind of Blue was like the first comping that I ever had to really transcribe. And that literally the, the 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 quarter note triplet polyrhythm over the ride symbol is something that you hear and you take for granted, and then you sit down and you try to do it, and you're like, oh, I actually have to fucking create a new pathway in my brain for this, you know, unless you've already done it. Right. You got to open that door, you know. New concept. Yeah, and it sounds easy, but it's not. You know, it's just like reggae, where it's like, oh, it's slow and simple. It's like, actually, no, it's a very complex groove. You right. know, just because it's repetitive doesn't mean it's simple. that it's easy. Right. Yeah, or simple. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, um, moving just beyond the jazz spectrum. So that's obviously the foundation of your love of improvisational music and probably... That's part of it, yeah. Um, when did you kind of, or I should say, what was next... Did the jazz come? Did this level of jazz appreciation come when you were double majoring in college in music, or was it before that, or was it after that? I'd say my appreciation for jazz <clears throat> was there, but not quite realized. I also grew up listening to Buddy Rich a lot and his big band. His uh, something your parents put you on to? No, it was all. Literally, my parents put me on to like you know, Floyd, classic, classic rock. And they always, you know, they, everything in between, I mean, obviously the Beatles, you know, we had all the Beatles records, but like, my dad used to like to listen to classical music and I actually grew up in the orchestras. 
a big orc dork, um, as well as being a drummer, but it was just like another way to get and you know out of math class and into something that I was actually into you right. know um, but yeah I mean you asked what was next right well I was just trying to figure out what how did you get into you know whether it was fish or the jam community and eventually you know reggae music what came first was it was it the the I'd jam say, culture or was it the you know island culture musically no, I'd say it was um, the fact that, like, being with my friends and listening to music with them was cool. And some of them, like, knew more bands than I knew, especially bands that not many people knew. Like, they were more good with the internet where they were finding these blogs where, oh, you know, check out this band or check out this band. Like, like I said, you know, my parents had very kind of mainstream influences so it was mainly my friends that would get me into stuff that I hadn't heard of you know like I remember the first time I heard Thrust yeah and I was like game changer for sure you know and I was like so a homie put that on for you as soon as I get to college you know all the shit you start hanging out with other dudes and you're like oh shit like this is dope oh I could this is my type of jazz right you know this is Herbie Hancock no shit like Herbie's on so then you go back and you're like oh if they're doing this then and right. 10 years wow. before that's a lot of context you know too. so so a lot of it was my friends what years were you in school at University of Indiana I went from 2002 to 2007 okay and you know it was a great place to one go to college right but some of the people you know that I went to school with Dave Scalia me and Morgan Price you might know Morgan Morgan's in he's been in a bunch of bands in Brooklyn but right now he's touring with Andy Bylas and he's you know recorded with all of that whole Daptone thing and right he's in the Duke Ellington Orchestra like with Marty Morell on drums he used to be in Bill Evans trio like he plays with cats that we grew up listening to you know right he's like that and him and then Dave our other roommate is L King you know her one two three right. big pop gig you know and I'm doing this and it's just kind of like you don't realize like we all taught each other at the same time as much as we were learning in school you know like the double major was cool because it was like a forced thing that you had to like do certain shit but like there was clearly people there that were like lifestyle wise into being a lifer right versus like oh I can tell you all about this but I don't live it right you know that's how you actually learn about shit you're into is being in the place where people are into it you know like your life just lends itself to like I like to get fucked up I like to trip balls so like you know when I was young I did it a lot and it was like oh I found myself at shows and meeting this person and that person it was all this kind of thing and then I was just like I think I could do that and like one of the things you know when, when did that happen that moment I think I pretty could soon that. after I started like like 19 or 20 okay are you, playing, are you playing out at that point? Are you playing in little combos playing out, and stuff? Yeah, playing out, but also just knowing like what I've put together and what I'm capable of putting together and, and being like, look, 
you know, at that time, it's like uh, when the Disco Biscuits had their drum off. Right. You know, my boys were like, dude, you should fucking do this. And I'm like, I was like, uh, you know, it didn't really occur to me to drop out of school and join the Disco Biscuits. Right. I was like two and a half years in and I'm like, you know, while this seems cool, you know, it just wasn't, not that I would have won or whatever. Alan's a good friend of mine, you know, I think it's great. I think it was a cool thing they did too, but like, it wasn't something that grabbed me to be like, oh yes, this is like my calling. You got to do this. And I think part of that is because at that point I was already looking back and, and looking at what you know those guys are doing and fish and all this and then being like very cool very cool very cool but then I was going back to like get deeper into like improv history you know into jazz and and into free jazz and into groove music that was you know into James Brown and learning when it's Clyde and when it's Jabo and you know like knowing all the stuff that like I wouldn't be comfortable putting myself in certain situations if I didn't know you know yeah sure not to mention that, you know, it's hard to to come from that world of the jazz in 59 and the stuff you're talking about and then, you know, respect to what jam bands do, but it's it's, it's different. It's not on that level, if you will. And yeah. it's hard for you, I can imagine, to just throw away two and a half years of studies and a life and a group of friends and a routine. Yeah, and I also just, like uh, and, I, and I also, you know, it, but one, one, you one, it was just that. a chance, and, and two, like, uh, it just wasn't like, it just didn't grab me, you know, it wasn't like something that I wasn't, maybe I wasn't ambitious enough, or maybe it wasn't what was supposed to happen, I mean, you know, I tell stories to Brownie, you know, Brownie and Magna and I are pretty good friends now, and, and, uh, you know, I was telling them, like, yeah, man, when I was fucking 20, all my friends wanted me to audition for the band you know and he's like you fucking should have you know it would have been crazy like we could have known each other longer basically right. is his thing and i'm like i'm like yeah but it seems like everything worked out you yeah. know alan's still there alan's still Going there strong. and they're doing their thing yeah. and like i'm a part of a band now that i feel a deeper connection to because of the international influence of music Let's talk about that. You get you get out of school in 07. Mm-hmm. You go back to D.C. Oh, okay. something like I forget. Yeah, something like that. You go back to D.C., which is where you're from and uh-huh. where your roots are, and you just start gigging, kind of? Yeah, so... Um, and when did you get on... Or how did it come together with Rob and Thievery? So, one of the biggest things that I might, you know, in, in life, you know... I believe in commitment and I believe in things like a lot of artists bug me because I feel like they forget that like there's also life, you know, and like they get dark or they get this or that and or like all they want to talk about is certain things and I'm like, you know, like part of the best part about being a musician is being able to choose like, hey, I'm going to take time to go be with my family or do this or do that, right? So when I was in college, my brother got diagnosed with cancer and I didn't quit school, although I thought about it to go be with him because it was, it was bad. He eventually passed away six years later. And, and I was like, look, you're going to be fine. I'm going to finish school. I'll move back home. We can spend time together. 
all that happened. And the reason I moved home primarily was to be with him. And he was five years younger than me, so he was finishing up high school. You know, it took him extra years because he was in the hospital for, you know, months on months on end. But uh, that was the obvious direction of, like, in my life, what I value is bringing me here, you know. Whatever happens with music after that will be... I'm not worried about that because this is my priority right now. So <clears throat> part of, I feel why I got lucky enough to be the first drummer in Thievery, which is a band based on electronic beats. You know, they had two percussionists and the beats were all DJed. Um, that opportunity, that like luck was all because I chose to go, you know, be with my brother. Cause I wouldn't have been anywhere except probably New York or LA or, you know, New Orleans was a oh. big option. But Katrina had just hit, you know, and it was just like a mess down there. And <clears throat> um, But I had this obvious direction, and when I took that direction, I moved to D.C., and I was just thwarted with gigs, you know. And it, I, I'm not necessarily saying, like, you know, every little thing is because of that decision, but, you know. It's what put you there. The big, yeah, the, the big things come together in, on a different level. But I was playing with a bunch of people my my college band Mojai got back together one of our first gigs was at 18th Street Lounge which is Thievery Thievery's club and yeah I mean it was that kind of like blind trust of just like here's what I gotta do that put me in an environment where a month after my brother passed away was my first Thievery gig a month so the, after. Yeah, so to the point where, like, him and I would sit and talk, you know, get stoned or whatever, and like, we'd be listening, because, like, it was kind of happening over time. Like, we tried once, and then, like, some people got really upset that I canceled on them, and then I had to postpone. A lot of dramatic shit. Yeah. Like, to get to get that going. So there was, it was kind of happening, so I get, you know, he'd be like, he was like, you're going to, he was like, you're going to be the drummer in this band, you know, and, like, that whole process of, seeing him through the rest of his life, being around people that eventually became my new family, you know, like the other day we, you know, we had a dinner in Birmingham at this wonderful restaurant that was recommended to me by a friend, and it was my brother's birthday, and, you know, my, my salute was, look, you know, today's my brother's birthday, lost one, gained a bunch, you know, right. and that's just how I feel like his legacy for me like his parting gift was like yo this is now going to be your life you know like and your fam and my fam and you know we have this crazy existence together that isn't really like any other bands in the jam scene which is going back to like the world influence and like the reggae and the afro beat and the down tempo and the trip hop like the european influence sure. like you know thievery jam bands don't sell tickets outside the states no not, not even know. fish not even the yeah. dead you know True. so it's like there's a reason why fish we happens. sell more tickets internationally yeah you know we'll, we'll Australia is sold out every time we go you know Europe runs sold out Greece 10,000 people show up yeah. you know yeah. so it's like it's something where I feel more lucky to be in an underground band that is 
internationally global, global. recognized. Yeah. I mean, I've been listening to Thievery since 98, maybe even 97. Mm-hmm. I got the DJ Kicks compilation. K&D. Yeah, same, this, same era, all that. And so that's why, like, when I finally got around to seeing this current iteration of Thievery's live performance, you know, I'm talking still five, six years ago, it was a, like, revolution of sorts because you glossed on it. I really want to touch on the stuff with your brother, but um, in terms of like the electronic and the world influence and the reggae influence, that sort of bringing the live instrumentation to that without losing the oomph, without losing the impact of what is electronic music mm-hmm. thump, mm-hmm. you know, it's been tried and not accomplished a lot. And it's a, it's a slippery slope. True. And somehow you guys managed to keep that electronic ethos and remain, you know, true to the songs, if you will, especially the, the classics. And the feeling of it, and the, yeah. Right, but for the quote-unquote jam band or the community or people who are seeking that experience, it's a very live band, very in the moment, very, you know, unique to itself. So it really... You can do Jam Cruise, and then you can play, you know... Concert any House in Austria sold out go. for 2,200 people, where and Beethoven and used to premiere his works, you know? It's that's crazy, yeah, it's crazy. So, before we get back to the music, I just want to finish up with stuff. What was your brother's name? Nicholas. Nicholas, and he was Nicholas how old when Tom's he uh, passed away? 21. Wow. 20... Let's see. He was born in 89... Yep, he would have turned 22 that year. And so 15 to 21, he battled. But you, you had that end of his life. Uh, you had that time together. Again. Totally. And, like, honestly, man, I do better almost when I have, like, uh, an obvious choice. You know, if there's, like, if I'm looking at a Coke machine and I'm like, oh, my God, every version... I don't drink soda, but just metaphorically, right. every soda you could ever want is in this Coke machine. I'm like, it's going to take me a while to pick which one I want, you know? In life, you know, if you're not seeking a 9-to-5 job, then it's kind of like looking at a Coke machine with every flavor. You're like, which direction do I go? Yeah, which one's going to kill me? Which one's going to make sure I can get my work done? You know, which one's going to do the blah, blah, blah. So when you look at a Coke machine and you're like, yo, we got all one thing you're like well I know what I'm going to get you know so like that's how my life was you know it was like I had one option it was like whatever I can do to be with my brother you know to help him help my mom help my dad help whoever I could (coughs) and um, so part of how I you know met guys in the scene and was going to shows outside of Indiana was he got treating in New York at Sloan Kettering right so once a month I would fly there and I'd go see Jazz at the Vanguard, or I'd go see Deitch play with, before it was even Break Science, Adam Deitch Project or some shit, you know, take a lesson with him and get to know him, and then, you know, he'd be hipping me to, like, cats like Stu Brooks and D'Antoni Parks, and, you know, cats that were, when I'm, like, a 20-year-old in Indiana, I'm not a 20-year-old in New York, you know, so it was nice to have, you know, people bringing other inspiration back, because we were obsessed with John Zorn, we were obsessed with, like, 
you know, Naked City, New Mike, downtown New York of the two thousands right. was a scene. Bro. Sure, super cool, yeah. super cool scene. The Medeski thing <coughs> crossed into that world a little from the nineties, yeah. But but like once it. once it, like Mark Rabot, mm-hmm. right? Mark Rabot, Dave Douglas. I right. mean, but I mean, Medeski brought me there. That the connections of is how I found out about that because I wasn't living in New York, nor was I really dialed. I guess, way. yeah. I guess Zorn had a club. What was this club? Um. Some, um like the uh, the stone. Yeah. One of my goals, you know, and could I saw happen, a show but there. Like, I want to say. But yeah, the stone was Zorn's club, and me, and he got the MacArthur Genius Grant, um, and you know Steve Coleman, Five Elements. Steve Coleman got that grant recently, and Fifty Five Bar also had a hot scene back then. Fifty Five Bar Smoke, you know, I mean yeah. everything. I studied with uh, Daniel Sedonik, who played on. A soul live record, but he also was in Screaming Headless Torsos, played with Nick Payton. So, like, when I would go visit my brother, you know, eventually he's going to be conked out, you know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and rage New York as soak a, it all till five a.m. and go see the cats that I'm yeah. listening to on record play for twenty people for eighty bucks, you know. They ain't going home with Mad Loot playing for twenty people, but they're recording on big record, you know. That's how New York is, you know. So taking that as like my first kind of direction of life really and you know when you're younger you're kind of everything is like whoa crazy and fantastic and you're dealing with family shit so it's like just wanted to maximize the the situation you know i'm going to visit my brother who's fucking battling for his life okay after 11 p.m i can't really do anything about that until tomorrow again, so I'm going to go out from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. Especially and since if you didn't check go out, out you just shit. be thinking about how yeah, awful you, this was. Yeah, and you know, like, it's a springboard, you know, I mean, everything is a springboard. Whether it's good or bad, you know, there's always a way to to flip it around, Yeah, you know? to channel it into something. And, and he told me before he passed, he was like, look, the fact that you didn't quit school let me know that I was at least going to make it that long. Oh, right know, on. Because he, he was like you, you didn't. He's like you weren't phased. You know, right. he was like you. You looked at me. You're like, oh, you got this. You know, and when you did that, he was like, I got this. You know, and and because I, you know, I was like, you'll be all right. I'll come visit you. You know, I'm gonna help mom, but also like comedic relief. Like I got arrested one night outside of fucking uh, Club Midway. You know, fucking seeing Deitch play or something. With some dude that promoted the Telluride Jazz Festival, go out to smoke a joint, end up in the fucking jail, you know. And my mom's in the Ronald McDonald house with my brother and his friend, and gets no call, and I don't come home until like seven thirty. I'm like, hey, mom, I'm, I'm coming home. She's like, where the fuck have you been? Blah 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 blah. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just getting out of jail. Yeah, drunk tank for the night. <laughs> don't don't worry about it. She's like, when are you gonna? fucking learn blah 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 I'm like learn what that I shouldn't be smoking a joint on the street in New York City who gives a shit you know when are they gonna learn same thing when are they gonna learn yeah fuck them but anyways I was like that one trying to just take it all in stride you know I'm like that's amazing nothing too serious (laughs) that you shared that that's the two sided coin of that experience going to Sloan Kettering by day and you know seeing your brother through yeah so, yeah, man, thank you for sharing that. And like I told you on the walk up, a big part of why I do this is beyond the music nerd stuff and the, you know, homie shit. There's like life, and that can be inspiring to somebody 
it was either living that reality or recently lost somebody yeah. close to them and yeah i appreciate that and then just going that. back to what we were saying about like you know how you how we ended up here versus yeah. the kid that was sitting next to me in class who's like you know doing something else whatever whatever it be is like i like to push it you know when i was young i would be you know experimenting with oh right. what does music sound like on this and what you know everything was like what does music sound like when i'm this and when i'm right. that and, you know and uh it's a lifestyle thing and so when you choose that lifestyle you've seen it i've seen it it's it's a slippery slope sometimes yeah. of of wanting to feel that freedom and, and chase that feeling of like, oh my God, this was the greatest night or this was the best jam or, you know, like we want people to be comfortable to be able to go to that place so they can feel it the deepest. However, some some people can't handle that responsibility for their own bodies, you know? True. And it gets dangerous. Yeah, very. So that's like those hard times you're talking about is like, it's kind of it's kind of not like if it's more like when and how are you going to deal with it you know right because the lifestyle you know it's supposed to be fun and it is sometimes right but it can definitely be hard and dangerous and dark um i mean speak from experience but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and like we were talking about the network of friends in the music community where you live to a lesser extent here and there's a lot of support people looking out for each other you gotta mm-hmm. I gotta hope that that sense of community extends beyond just the partying and the gigs and stuff but also the when and if as you stated yeah you know, you and, have then, to and then be, how yeah and then how yeah um so just for a pivot um back to when we were talking about you joining thievery and mm-hmm. it was unfortunately a month after uh, your brother Nicholas passed away mm-hmm. um we talked a lot about jazz and a little bit about funk, um, but you needed to come with a very unique skill set to be the first, and I guess to this point, only trap kit drummer of Thievery. So when does electronic music come into your field as a player, and like, how did you adapt what you'd learned from the Buddy Riches and Billy Higgins and stuff and match it up to these, you know turntablism and electronic production yeah um i would say you know breaks drumming for me starts with james brown and um and zigaboo and then from there quickly 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 skips to like quest love and like the roots come alive is yeah. one of my favorite albums of all time yeah and that was heavy heavy rotation in early developmental years for me and and the idea of playing with a ride cymbal a snare drum and a floor tom and a hi-hat you know like the minimal yeah minimalist right sound yeah. of what this type of music needs and really what Rob and Eric were doing at the beginning sampling on their MPC and you know putting out shit on dat tape was making dope, sexy hip-hop beats that became trip-hop, that also became, you know, down-tempo, 
just because of mainly what was on top of it and a little bit about what's in the middle but like bass wise and groove wise it's very much the same still like the same a little bit of the arpeggiated synth a little bit of like you know the eastern vocal sample or a sitar part or something but like man you listen back to the early shit of all the hip-hop stuff all that's in there and the slightly atonal sound of like hip-hop where it's like oh this is scratched in sample here that's kind of in the relative key of this minor key but it's also like brings in this weird you know which is why jazz and hip-hop are so dope because jazz will throw in these weird extensions on chords where it's basically like two chords at once but depending on how you voice it give a different color right. and then hip-hop's like oh well we got a couple different samples that are kind of in the same key and then we can relatively move them but then there's just going to be songs that have this weird atonal darkness to them just because the groove and the bass are holding down the fun fundamental but then these upper samples are creating these extensions of like harmony and shit you know and so like definitely not even realizing it um you know how much hip-hop and i had a girlfriend back in the day who was like I was I was picky about my hip hop. I wasn't like I hope so. I mean, well, yeah, but like I. Garbage. But this was still like, I mean, <coughs> this was still not too far into garbage land, you know. Early two thousands, you know, in Talib and most stuff are still putting out great shit. The Roots are still putting out great shit. Sure. And 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 there's always going to be good hip hop. However, the mainstream is you know. Up until you know the Anderson Pack and the Kendrick Lamar movement of recent, there yeah, hasn't been much in the mainstream yeah, that's been, been really yeah some some. But some the early two really thousands was was definitely for fertile time. Great, great, yeah. you know, especially for that neo soul Philadelphia yeah. downtown New York. I mean, that's when the roots were so so important and reminding people that hip-hop can be live yeah beastie boys so instrumental yeah. in reminding people that hip-hop can be live and hip-hop i mean if you listen to any roots record you're gonna hear the history of music and the fucking on the record and those dudes love the beastie boys they yeah. love the fucking punk aspect of a live band i mean first time i ever saw the roots was on the ill communication tour in philly do You Want More had just come out. And I only knew The Roots because I passed by. They were set up outside. I went to get a cheesesteak on South Street, Jim's. And there was a live rap band. And I just, like, kind of a memory of, like, my... <laughs> but just, like, this memory of my youth. And apparently they did that regularly, and there's photographs of them. It was, like, oh, yeah. a thing. But I didn't know that. There was no internet back in 94, or at least not in your home, you know? No. So, uh, yeah, I, I get that. Like, the Beasties came through, and... They had John Spencer Blues Explosion and The Roots open for them. So that was my introduction to The Roots. And they definitely was like the... And the punk hip-hop thing goes back to the early 80s. You know, cause both music of the people, music of the streets, marginalized, making do with what you got. There's Bad a lot brains, of DIY I mean, that in yeah. the, embed, embedded. And both have been bastardized, not just hip-hop. There's been some, you know... Punk has been packaged up and hung on a rack in Hot Topic. You know, doesn't mean there's not still dope punk happening across in Berkeley and Gilmore and all that, Gilman. But we go off the. I know what you mean. Here. I know what you mean. But yeah, I mean, as far as my concept behind break strumming. Yeah. <laughs> that's where. 
it came from. That's where it came from. Because as a kid, you don't think about it. Even the first time I heard Thievery Corporation, first time I heard Thievery Corporation, I was huge into Flaming Lips at that point. And that was early. Early lips. 2000s. No, right. I mean, I was into Soft Bulletin. Okay. I was into early lips, as in like Vaseline was like their big MTV right. hit. Um, I didn't that's get late in ni- mid nineties, late nineties. That's like mid mid late. Vaseline is kind of mid late, um, but then Soft Bulletin. I met th- the best friends I made at college. I went to college when I was seventeen, so yeah, around that time it was like right when Yoshimi came out. Soft Bulletin was like two years old, and Dave Friedman was producing all this shit. Right. Dave Friedman is the same guy that produced that MGMT record with all the hits on it. He's the master of blending electronic and live. Interesting. Fucking master. Uh, That's like my bucket list producer, like fucking Mike D, Dave Friedman, Questlove. Can't go wrong. If I could, if I could do a record with Dream Team style, yeah, then it would be three different bands. <laughs> right. But still, um, those are the sounds I love, and uh, so just knowing, also coming from the orchestral standpoint, playing in thievery is like playing in an orchestra. Ensemble style. It's an ensemble, but instead of like sitting and counting, you play while you wait for the moment. Right. And and that is part of just like in an orchestra like the way you sit, the way you get up, whatever it is you do to like play one note. Right. is your performance, right? In thievery, that note happens every 16 or 32 or twice a song. That moment happens where you got to you know shine. bring it up a, a bit or bring it down a bit without shining, you without know. Shine. With support you know because their beats you know they're just beats they don't they didn't really put fills into their music you know they didn't put that what would they they might put two beats together and then all of a sudden you have one beat and another beat and then the kick drum pattern turns into two kick drum patterns and you have to make both of them happen then only embellishments you can do are within those patterns otherwise the groove changes right so it's like basically like two turntables I'm the third turntable. I'm the one that is basically like, all right, here's our beat. We can mix in on top of this, but this is the one that's going to be going all the time. You know, I saw Blockhead recently, and it was the best down-tempo, trip-hop, like, breaks DJ set I've seen in a long time. Because every tune... He had at least two breaks that were just drum breaks that he was like remixing in live. Really? And I would be like, "Vinyl set? No, just not, just him." He wasn't. But was he playing vinyl or was he playing? Oh, uh, like uh, a I think he was Ableton playing Serato. Serato. Yeah, he but but still on turntables. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't wasn't anything like that. I think it might have even been CDJs or whatever. But um, a thing where like, you know, if you got one beat that's like, and then you got one beat that's like. So then, then you end up with like, you end up with like all these kick drums happening because you have two drum beats going, one simple, one's a little more. Thievery is all about that. And when I first joined, we would talk, and <clears throat> even before, like when I was producing stuff for their label, before I was in the band, I was like, oh, so you you had a relationship with them 
before you actually became the drummer, you were just producing yeah. for that. So ESL Music was, you know, doing its thing, and I was involved with bands that were, they were starting to record other bands and record live as best they could, which we didn't have much of a live setup. You know, we had about, we had a closet for the drum set that was right next to a glass window, which was reflecting into the high mic, just like no any attention to like how to actually record live it was just like oh well let's try it you know so we ended up doing um the first funk arc record i don't know if you've ever heard of that band but yeah um that band had a great run um but you know i saved that record by taking the files to my house and bringing them back because the guy who was engineering at that time tried to turn it into like a looped out the recorporation record and all the essence of what it was supposed to be was lost and he was taking up a bunch of studio time which was supposed to be like hey look we're gonna put out this record for you guys but just come in and record it and it's going out you know right. so I was like hold on before this gets shelved forever let me cause the, there was some weird politics shit going on and they didn't want me at the editing sessions even though like as the drummer and I was doing percussion loops for this record I'm like you guys are gonna have to know where which side of the beat the clave is on, and I'd come in and everything would be fucking backwards and all the shit, and I'm like, "You're gonna fuck this up. <laughs> Give it to me. I'll bring it back." Brought it back. They're like, "What'd you do?" I was like, "I just literally put the songs back together that you started taking apart and put the parts where they were supposed to go." You know, I know the music, right? And and so that that was definitely a big part of what opened their eyes to working with me as a studio musician, which is eventually how I got into the band. Right on. Yeah. And hearing those conversations about, oh yeah, this is this break, and then this break, and then the third section is these two breaks put together, and the fourth section is this two breaks put together with one more break on top. And it's just like, all right, so my job is to basically be one, two, and three turntables, whether it's one, one, and two, one, and three, one, two, and three, and are you listening live to hear, like, oh, now he just pulled out the second breaks, now I'm just one and three? A hundred percent. That's how I learned. Are you guys communicating in the moment, like, uh, in your style, or are you just following? Now the songs are stemmed out in Ableton, and we do, like, a whole... There's no drums from the tracks in the house, it's just me. Okay. So when you hear my beat get embellished, that's because what is happening in the track is now there's two beats going. Gotcha. You know, or if I do a fill where you just hear the kick drum get a little busier and then I hit a one, it's because I can't change the top, but I can change the bottom. As long as the bottom is already there, I can fill in a little more. But gotcha. it started with me and a mastered track going to the house at the same time. So if I did anything different at all... You'd be out of time. Shoes in the dryer. Right. You know what I mean? Like, And there's really no was no precedent for you with this, right? I mean, there's some groups are doing live electronic music, but, but I mean, in the, to this, yeah. I, I can't really think of any that were reproducing it in such a way, like you're describing, where you're, you're literally, like you said, three drum beats at once, so you're playing the produced electronic music, recreating it. Yeah. Well, I know these guys are, especially Eric, the one who's not, really doesn't tour much anymore, is... The dude that sits on the couch and plays his guitar and stuff. No, 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 he's not, he's not even here, he's in D.C., He's home sampling records, you know. Um, but he's one of the two. Rob and Eric, Rob. yeah, yeah, yeah. Rob. So, so Eric, 
And we've still struggled and talked and grown from wanting the sound of the beats they've produced to be the sound of what the crowd is hearing. But there's tracks where like the beats are really in the back and like there's nothing the sound guy can do to make it pop. You know, like one of our old sound guys, Wedge, who knows, like toured with U2 in the 80s and the 90s, like knows everybody. He came up to me after our LA show and was like, I wish I could be mixing this band while you're in it. Because he was like, I could not get anything out of those tracks that wasn't, it was just, that's all I had to work with. You know, there wasn't a drummer to kick it when it needed right. to be kicked. It was just loop, okay, loop with another loop, back down. It wasn't like a whole thing. Right. And so going back to what you're saying about unprecedented like pioneering of it yeah i mean there's definitely bands that you know that have played with a click or played with tracks but bands like morchiba groove armada massive attack um thievery they are outside of the new producer dj bubble correct they're old school yeah k and d every last one of them you know and so and so Thievery got a drummer before Pretty Lights got a drummer. Yeah. Thievery got a drummer before a lot of people started doing DJ and drums. Yeah. And that's why I asked when I said like unprecedented. A lot, a lot has happened since, but before right. there was not a lot of, if any, where you could look to and be like, all right, how does he do it? Yeah. Well, I luckily in DC, there's a band called Empresarios who is the first percussionist in Thievery. Uh, his band was Empresarios and it was the first band I played with where it was full Ableton where somebody knew how to send me stuff that wasn't going to the house so like live drums in the house live this but I'm hearing like a click and going with you know the song but they're putting only certain things in the house so when I started doing that in DC it was probably two years before I joined Thievery and when the, the dons of the city the creators of the scene saw what homies were doing Oh, they got a drummer? Oh, that sounds good. Like, oh, I like Jeff. Maybe we should try it. You know? And <clears throat> and they tried it. And, you know, I was basically like, look, going in knowing that change is very hard to come by in certain... Now it's easier, but back then it was like too many hoops to jump through, you know? And the engineer was a way overthinker, and he was like, I'm going to sample all the drums. We're going to put you on an electronic kit, and you're going to play the exact drum sounds from the record live. And I was like, if you try to do that, I'm never going to have a gig. Put a drum set on stage. I'll do the rest. You know? And we had like one little talk where Eric was like, I'm not really interested in seeing what you do. I know you can play what's there. He's like, I want to see how you can just like add a little bit. And I was like, done. That's what you needed to hear. Because you wanted that, right? You didn't want to just recreate I don't mind recreating, but I was, it was nice to hear him say, you know, like, let's see what happens if I don't tell you too much. Right. You know? And he trusted me like that. And uh, coming from the orchestral standpoint, like I said, you wait for your moment, you make the moment happen, and then you just do your job right. for the rest of the time. And in, that, in this case, doing my job means playing the brakes as they are as they are right and and if you which are pretty funky they're funky and and 
funkier now that they're live for sure. And, and if you, you can flow, bring them up, like you said, the guy was saying, volume, you, know, you can and, bring them up. And you you can, can add in betweens, but if that big wave doesn't happen of the kick and the snare, and when that whole thing is swinging, then people turn their heads. Right. You know what happened? Like I was in this hip, hypnosis, and then something changed. Like it's got to be the whole time. So if you fill. You better be filling within the groove, you know, which is a good thing for anybody to to take to the musical approach. Yeah, man, appreciate the thorough breakdown of the approach to electronic drums in the live setting, and I think you did a lot to uh, help people maybe have a better idea of how that works. You know, I've always been curious myself. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's just a concept, you know. I mean, it's not. It's not a band that uh, you're gonna necessarily wonder where it's gonna go tonight. Right. You know, it's your job to make sure that where it's supposed to go, it goes. You know. One offhand comment I wanted to just ask about because said, she said uh, your bandmates had to ask about it on the pod is the bench when uh, somebody is on the bench. Somebody's on the bench. Um, well. The speaking of Lulu, is yeah, that, yeah. So I guess because we were talking about, um, <clears throat> I think getting high during the show or something. Uh, it was actually ice for your drink. Oh, ice! Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, there's a core of us that are up there the whole time, right? That who playing the whole gig, playing the whole gig, and it's bass, drums, guitar slash sitar. Who's one guy? Percussion, and that guy sings a few songs too, and then the DJ. So there's five of us that are up there. Like, you know, if the set list is 28 songs, we're playing 28 songs. Right. If the set list is 28 songs, it probably means because we have another singer there, so they're going to do three songs too. It works into about three, maybe four songs a night for each of the singers, some two. Yet, the singers typically come with the most baggage literally because they have to change their outfit every night and you know they got a big suitcase full of all the stuff and you know take the time to get ready because they're in the limelight but there's very few of the vocal parts that i personally couldn't cover <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like you know i think when you're on the bench you're not riding the bench you're just sitting out until it's your song again and we're up there playing, sweating, so like, getting in the groove every tune, you know, running the, the flow and counting the tunes in and doing everything that you normally do. But like the front people of this of this group are a rotating cast right. throughout the night. Lulu, you got uh, Liff. Lulu, Liff, Puma, Raquel, Natalia. And then Frank will come out and sing. Um, but it's been more, you know, we've had up to seven. Yeah. You know, so it's like they'll come if I ever need leverage to like get a little something from management, I'm like, yo. I'm not just up there singing th for three songs, you know, like we need to talk. Like right. <laughs> talking about two straight hours of like my serious concentration and sweat and Yeah, it's physical too. And and running the show and like making sure, you know, there's no click track, so I count in these electronic songs just off the top, you know, off my dome, because anything extra becomes 
something that could go wrong. Right. So I try to keep it very natural. You know, a lot of people come in when they do these gigs, even if they're not the drummer, when they're doing electric gigs with tracks or whatever, they want click track and they want all this and this. And I'm like, like I said, as soon as you start doing that, I won't have a gig. Right. Because then you got to hire somebody else to do that, to, you know, and it's just like, no. Put a drum set on stage. There you go. Leave the rest up to me, you know. I'll try not to shine like shoes in a dryer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't heard you yet. You won't. Tonight, it'll be great. Well, it's been uh, awesome to get the 411 on Thievery and your backstory, but uh, one thing that I caught you playing in my former town in Nevada City with uh, a group that you call Congo Sanchez, Mm -hmm. and uh, I just wanted maybe you to take the time to let the people that are listening know, you know, about that project and anything affiliated. I know you've got something called Natural Selecta. Mm-hmm. So how did that come to to be, and uh, what is it? And so, where can people hear it? Okay, so Congo Sanchez, going back to me producing stuff um, with Thievery. For ESL. Yeah, before um, I was in Thievery, I was, you know, producing tracks for my bands, demos and whatever in my studio where I could... You know, just get four to eight, four to eight channels of audio going to Logic or whatever program I was running. Um, learning what a compressor is and learning how to EQ stuff and you know stuff that I didn't learn before. You know, stuff that was like, oh, you know, I want to make beats and I'm like, why don't my drums sound like the drums that I am used to hearing on records? You know. Oh, well, there's this, there's miking technique, all the, getting into all that stuff. So, Congo Sanchez started as a collection of songs that were songs that I did for myself, where I played all the instruments, while I was producing stuff for bands that were putting out shit. So, like, I'd, I'd work on songs for a demo for this one band and then be like, I think I can make something a little doper, you know? <laughs> like, because everything was period piece with, like, funk arc, and then CI was this, like, kind of reggae thing. It was, like, all kind of codified. It wasn't, like, something new that was right. that was crossing many genres. You, you know, produced for CI? I produced for CI as well. Did yeah. you also play live? Yes. So did you do the Bear Creek with him? Uh, he played at the last Bear Creek. No, I was already out of the band okay. at that time. Um, anyway, but that's a, that's pretty much the most natural progression into Thievery is the fact that I got into CI, which was all the members of the band of Thievery, including two singers. And if that wouldn't have, if I wouldn't have been able to get along with those cats, they never Thievery never would have happened. But yeah. that was like my fam, fam. Right. Even before Rob and Eric, I knew those guys. Like, and while I was going through, all that, like, they knew what I was going through. Like, they were there, like, on a different level of like support. Serious. Roots and Z, Virgo Sag. Me and my brother Virgo Sag. Hash and his brother Virgo Sag. Like, right. my brother's best friend, and his brother Virgo Sag. Like, all this brotherhood, you know. Right on. Really cool. And I haven't yet been been in a band where there's not family members in the band <laughs> for a long period of time, at least. So, how does Congo Sanchez go from one-offs that you're doing on the humble while you're working on other projects to basically your main other thing yeah. besides thievery? Well, I got an opportunity to play Electric Forest in 2012, 
and that was the first Congo Sanchez show. ESL Music had the Tripoli stage the first day, and I was the first act. <coughs> and at this point, I got people together to try to play what was on my EP, which was a very organic, live, all live instruments, you know, not like hearing electronic music in a system where it's produced so that the system is getting its maximum like frequency spectrum. It was more of like a live, dusty groove electronic thing. And uh, when I had the live show, I was like, all right, I know what I want to do electronically while maintaining this vibe. And I performed none of the first EP and I wrote all new music for Electric Force, 30 minutes. And I performed it and it went pretty bad. Um, the sun was shining on my DJ controller, so I couldn't see the buttons that were lit up, light cancellation, and I, like, at one point had to do the whole, you know, who knows if the kids noticed. But, uh, I'm sure they did. Could have been better. Um, but either way, it was, like, my first time doing a solo show where I was playing my beats, playing stand-up drums, and DJing all original shit, and then by the time we got to the third show, I had picked up two bandmates two MCs and from then on that's what we've been and uh, it's like a hybrid right it's 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 dance hall it's hip hop it's yeah. electronic it's very much like thievery but like the like thievery 20 years later yeah. like with the influences that happened instead of them coming from like oh well you know, back. yeah or, you know this is future dance hall exactly you know some shit that has a little more of a bass sound and, and this and that but regardless um that project we've toured for very hard for the last like four or five years and now we are working on you know we have a lot of the markets that we can play like where we met nevada city and like you know some bigger markets some ones around the same size but where we can make a decent check and continue to just like work a lot but you know and as we all do the you know, the approach to getting booked and getting numbers into your gigs now is more about getting people to follow you online. And then, like, this Mark Ribolet guy who's, like, maybe an offshoot of nowhere, or, you know, this kind of comedic funk stuff, uh, who's selling out venues, and he, and he has him in a boss loop machine, and he does these kind of punky, like, dance tracks. Right. And, but now he's selling out venues because of his online you know who knows if he ever did live shows before he definitely i'm not going to assume but some of the shit we've done the floors we slept on and the truck stops we slept like the road dog shit yeah i feel like some people are skipping you know because of not the, necessarily him i don't know his story but right but i get the especially get the in hip-hop you know and sure the two guys and the two on. guys that are in my band are big into world you know hip-hop and world star and and all this shit and so it's like and they paid dues with me, yeah, right? We, but I'm saying they, they, especially, yeah, highly. They've know. been on the road and like yeah. roughed it, and not sure how they were going to eat that day. Blah blah blah. Well, I mean, I take care of my guys. Right. You know, I forward, I always fortify the Congo gig with this gig from this gig because right. this gig is an opportunity. If you can't, you know, not if you can't, but it's 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 always a crapshoot. But if you have an opportunity to have a gig pay your bills, you better be investing some of that money into another band because right. you never know when. That could end or yeah, whatever. Yeah, so but I mean, your guys, I'm saying, they've, they've, they're not overnight sensations. They've paid their dues. Well, since this band, we've paid our dues. Highly, we plucked out of college. Okay. So he hadn't really even performed much. Um, and 
and since has paid a lot of dues and is continuing to that informs the music too like you can't it's like with the the blues thing yeah you got to live it and then you can play it yeah and i mean like some bands have the biggest followings don't have followings because they didn't talk to their fans and like sleep on couches like that's how you get yeah people that really believe in you to tell that is the whole get in the van yeah they're so cool and blah 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 and like you know i just feel like there's a whole detachment with this digital like ether of of people blowing up online and a lot of it I don't think is honestly that sustainable because once you realize what you have to do to maintain any sort of income, which is tour, yeah, and then you're just like, it's not your thing, then all of a sudden you're, you're kind of back to square one. You know, you don't make money from streaming, so no. make money from touring. So anyways, we're really focusing on putting our best foot forward with some recordings this year with, you know, penetrating some Spotify playlists and then going back out and hitting all of our markets but trying also to tap into a bigger um, uh, scope of who is seeing our music online. Because as I'm born in 84 and I don't necessarily, like, I am not a millennial. Me either. And, and this, but you got to play ball, you yeah. know? And, and that's where people are finding their interest is in I'm trying to figure it online out online buzz and I and I'm taking a step back right now to to put it out there that not only can we tour and we've done a hundred dates in a year where I've driven every fucking mile, booked every show, booked every hotel, crashed on the floor, you know, balanced the budget, done everything. Those guys don't even have their license, you know, so it's like <laughs> I got to the point where I was like, all right, well, this is great, and we can do this, and we can make an extra fucking however much per year on top of what we're doing while filling every possible second outside of my other schedule. But it seems like I got to work a little smarter and a little harder at some other shit besides driving in two feet of snow 80 miles an hour down a highway in Montana. You know what I mean? Like, we've done all that, which is cool, and that makes us know that we can do basically anything. However, we need to be smarter about, like, hey, if this is the game, if we need a million views on a Spotify song yeah. to, to, to boost our guarantee, 750 bucks, then let's, let's get on a playlist. Let's find the people that can help us do that and put out material that's worth it, you know? Yeah, man. Well, I'll definitely do my part, you know, get a story or two or whatever, try to plant something to get some buzz. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all... It's all it's, uh, Anything I can and, do to help. Which brings up the Natural Selecta thing, because that band is basically a cover band. And we've had, you know, 150,000 people check out one video. And it's not a million, but those videos are pretty much viral. Yeah. You know, whether or not they've... It's literally one share away from some big blog to get you know, easily a million hits, but like when we put up those videos, people from all over the world are tagging people and blah, 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 and it's a cover band. So it's like, I took that approach leading that band with the same approach we're going to retake with Congo Sanchez, but it was a new thing. So it was easier to start and be like, hey, look, here's a dope cover of Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, or I Can't Go For That, or... White Rabbit, all stuff you'd never hear in reggae. Right. By kids who, pretty diverse crowd. You know, the band's pretty white, but like, you know, it wouldn't call it white boy reggae because it doesn't sound, it's, it's literally yeah. just like musicians making music in a reggae right. style. 
But you're playing pop, uh, classic pop songs. Yeah, and and, and and the name Rest of the band. Do that in New Orleans all yeah, the time. I mean it's Go Go Bands do the same shit yeah. in DC, and and the name of the band is Natural Selective, and the first thing I think of is one a Selecta is a DJ, obviously right. like a reggae, you know, and Natural Selecta, Natural Selection, is a is an evolutionary idea, you know, founded theory founded by Darwin. And <clears throat> reggae in itself, in this current environment of, you know, the, uh, let's just say, I, I don't know how to describe the cultural revolution that's going on based around post-feminism, but still, like, you know, we're at some sort of crux where because of the, you know, the energy of the right and energy of the left both becoming more extreme, there's very tumultuous times, you know, the, the police brutality that was very much outed in the last 10 years that's been happening for the history yeah. of mankind, you know, is all part of this, you know, new movement to expose things that are a little, uh, need to be need to be in our history not in our in our present right so natural selecta is almost a jab at rasta because rasta is when i had dreads people were, are you a rasta and i'm i've, I've never claimed to be a rasta you know? I but I, at the same time my dreads to me did not did not necessarily mean something beyond my own personal spiritual growth um and and so when people would ask about Ross, I'm like, well, it is very possible that Haile Selassie is a descendant of David. I mean, he very well could be. I don't, I don't know, you know. Uh, but he's also, you know, while, yes, his, his political stature as a general, defending the Ethiopian, Ethiopian people who have never technically been colonized, <clears throat> you know, from Italy, was, was part of why he was deemed... Sounds immortal, good. you know, right. and 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 I get all that. I'm not ignorant to it. However, it wasn't where I was coming from when my hair started locking up. So I personally believe that something was created that was had the potential to evolve. You know what I mean? Right. Like, why does it have to be one or the other? How dumb do you have to fucking be to have just a one-sided view of things? Like. So anyways, Natural Selecta is another, it's a, it's a little punky because I'm like, yo, like, people don't, aren't even really seeing that, like, I'm like, yo, Natural Selection from creation is what the Rasa yell from right. creation. From creation. And then I'm like, all right, from creation we evolved into this. Like, I don't know what to tell you, but like, right. we weren't always like this. So anyways, it was fun and, and, and it comes together, but like, going back to that online thing, like, People love hearing a song that they've always heard in a different way. Yeah, reworked. And yeah. so the strategy for that band, I mean, that band makes loot off the get. Yeah. Because one, it's a super group and I need a certain amount. But two, it's like people look at numbers and they're like, oh, cool. And when you show up to the show, you're like, wow, numbers actually do equate. Like, Right. So as much as I'd love to be like, oh, yeah, we toured hard for five years and now we're rock stars. It's like, no, we toured hard for five years and nobody's hitting me up for gigs. Right. <laughs> you but know you I mean? also, like you said, you have the other... Fevery thing, you know, you got Natural Selector, which is a check. Well, can pe can all people those see Natural Selector outside of Denver? Have you ever taken it? We're going to be on Jam Cruise this year. 
But the the, na- the nature of natural selecta is that with hopefully just a few members, like rotating cast, like we can, if I'm there, we can probably pull it off. Right. Because I could be like, all right, this is just what it's going to be tonight. And I try to take a loose approach to things you can't control, you know, if you're not going to have the, the, you know, a cast, then... Right. Let's make, let's make a new A cast instead right. of considering it the B cast. You know, let's try something new. You know, sure. so it's basically like your thing and whoever you can kind of fold in. And it it's not a uh, it's not a uh, how do I say it's like not a set band. So yeah, it's whoever's available. I wish it could. But be. there's core guys. Eventually, yeah. I mean, like there's you know there's two bass like Josh Fairman's playing bass on the boat. He right. was the first bass player in the band. Yeah. He's great. He was busy as shit with Sun Squabby, so sure. he couldn't do like the last however many gigs. So Dan Africano has been doing it from John Brown's Body, right. and he's now in Denver. And, um, but it's basically like he's on the boat, Mike Tallman's on the boat, Kim Dawson's on the boat, I'm on the boat, um, Drew's on the boat. These are all people that were in the first show, right. <laughs> you know. So I'm like, we're doing it. Yeah. And Annabelle's like, here's 90 minutes. Great, you know. So, so I wanted it to be something that. And I sent the email to everybody that's not there, like, hey, don't don't trip. Like, this is not, a, like, a gig where we're getting paid and I didn't bring you. Like, this right. is, we're not getting, it's Jam Cruise. Everybody knows you don't get paid on Jam Cruise unless you're on, you know, unless you're on the bill. Right. You know, all the extras are freebies. So it's right. like. You know, fun shit comes out of that. Good shit. Fun shit. And, and it's also, you know, that boat, as far as reggae goes, like, they had the Whalers, Steel, Steel Pulse, Pulse yeah. was probably the deepest primary source of reggae I've seen on a bill for that boat. Nth Power Bob Marley tribute, great, a lot of yeah. great players. None of them are reggae players except right. Nate. Nate's the only one that plays reggae. Right. You know, um, so it's cool. It's fun. You can go yeah. sing along to your Bob Marley songs, and they get the best. It's Stephen once I think. Sail Away. Stephen played the Sail Away. Once. Oh, well, I... Oh, that was the Whalers. No, that was the Whalers. It wasn't Stephen. But, well, it was I, the Whalers. Yeah, but in, in, even so, I mean, right. Steel Pulse is still Steel Pulse. Oh, Steel Pulse is my favorite reggae band. They're Not the... Named Black they, they, haven't, they haven't changed, no. you know. I mean, they And what the, their original drummer actually passed while they were on the I boat. Know, I remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... So... While it's not the deepest, most Rasta thing, it's even kind of a little punky. Um... I feel like the cats that are, and the way we present it in a root style is something that the, that the boat needs. Yeah, especially since you're going to be in the islands and it's ideal yeah. elements for And it's a jam, music. you know, we, we play it and then we jam, you know, right. and it's, it's open. So whatever we want to do with the energy of the room, we try to do, you know. And yeah. It's a good one. Well, I want to wrap it up with just real quick, I understand... Uh, you have been putting out or doing a lot of sessions for Color Red, uh, Eddie Roberts label based out of Denver area. So uh, you were on a record with, um, was it Eddie? I, th- I could have sworn I saw there was like a, one song, like a single. Oh, it's Sophisticates? Yeah, I'm not sure. <coughs> what it was. So stuff I've done with Eddie. Um, or it was on Color Red and you're the drummer on the song. Yeah, so. There's a band called the Sophisticates, which is Eddie, 
me, Wally Ingram, who's a percussionist slash other drummer. We've okay. both been on drums for those releases. Um, Miles Tackett, who's Fred Tackett's kid. Miles Tackett's the Breakestra founder from LA. Yeah, yeah. Eddie introduced me to him in New Orleans. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and Eric McFadden and Spees, Chris Spees on keys. Yeah. And uh, Miles was playing bass, yeah. So that was a thing, and there's tracks that are going to be coming out, but most recently I went in and did sessions with Pete, Joe, Eddie, and this guy John Macy. I think that's what I had seen. And it ended up becoming a new Master Sound song. Okay. And you're on drums on the And I'm on drums, and I said, you know, as long as Simon isn't going to come after me, I'm I'm (laughs) down to put put out a new Master Sound song. You know, Simon's a good friend of mine, so it was a joke, but still... You never know. Yeah. So what Color Red is basically kind of just rep- representing this incredible, uh, what do you call it, like a renaissance of sorts that's happening in Denver. And and, and all over because everybody goes to Denver. So right. when they're in town, he's, you know, we're trying to get people to go in and do like a four-track EP sesh, from right. Color Red. And, you know, I've done everything from curating remixes to making remixes to producing sessions. I'm putting out drum breaks records um, that are just all percussion. Um putting out my own reggae stuff um, and also um, just working as, you know, if they need somebody. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of a group group effort when you're in there, producer-wise, but um, definitely it's an open, you know, it's an open table like I could if I have an idea I can go in there and, and do it that's awesome and Eddie's made it that way for the inner group of us who you know kind of were there when the ideas were coming up and you know it's not something that there are people that are working on the back end the financing and all this stuff but for most of us right now it's literally that thing that's like yo we got a tape machine that sounds great we got a studio that sounds great let's make some dope shit right We'll figure out, you know, if it, if it pops, we'll go but do the some shit. The aesthetic is yeah. dope. The rollout, the ethos, the mm-hmm. everything from the art to just the music, of course, but the cats in it. And the sort of like, it's not, you're not shoving it down people's throats. There's been a steady schedule of releases, but it's not beating you over the head. And, yeah. And I, I don't know, I've been really impressed. I, I plan to do a standalone story. You on the just, label. Yeah, you should just go there. Um, I've gone to, well, I'll be there for Rage Rocks. I might even come out for the Stanley Hotel thing with Lettuce. But whatever, it works out. But I, I told Eddie that I was interested in doing the story, so. And he's, yeah, I mean. He's a really accessible guy. And I want to have him on the podcast, too, if you're listening, Eddie, you know. If you're listening, you better have listened this far. Yeah, speaking Kuretic, of listening this Kuretic, far, I want to shout I out. I owe Kuretic a lot. He's done a lot for me. I love, I love, I love you, Eddie. Yeah, we love you, Eddie Roberts. You got to come on the podcast. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. I want to shout out our mutual friends, Andy DeWitt, if you're listening. South Jersey, uh, the Croak brothers, Matt and Garrett. Um, Andy's brother, rest in peace. Yeah, Ryan. Shout out to Greg, the youngest DeWitt. Um, rest in peace, Ryan DeWitt, for sure. Rest in peace, your brother, Nick. Yeah, I mean, it's when Andrew was dealing with that, I was, you know, I was there with him, man, like, encouraging emotion because sometimes you don't know how to do it. You know, yeah. you don't know how to talk about it or let it out. And definitely had some late nights. <laughs> yeah. you know what's crazy is that uh, you know when I was incarcerated my dad passed away it was sh- Ryan happened shortly after and 
Um, I'd heard about it through uh, Granite, uh, told me on the phone. But then uh, there was a Thrasher magazine going around our, our dorm. That's where the cells were in these little dorms. And I just, I didn't see it coming. I just opened it up and there's a full page memoriam to Ryan and Thrasher, or half page. Um, it rocked me to see that. You know? Yeah. So, anyway, want to shout those guys out. And uh, that's how we got on each other's radar. You know? Straight up. We're a long way from uh, East Coast, South Jersey, D.C., but got to shout out the homies. So this has uh, been an awesome talk with Jeff Franca of Thievery Corporation, Congo Sanchez, and natural selector we're looking forward to the, what you got coming in the future Me so too. thank you for uh, making some time and we'll uh, tonight is new year's eve show and uh i'm stoked to see jeff and the crew throw it down as we ring in 2019 so i'm gonna sign off and let jeff get a little bit of rest here before his gig and uh, we'll see you next time on the up for life podcast i'm your host b gets thanks for tuning in happy new year happy new year Sanchez, Jeff Franca, the Thievery Corporation drummer, and uh, my friend, friend of the show, friend of mine in real life, solid cat, and very grateful that he slid through and opened up so deeply and profoundly for the Up for Life podcast listeners. So uh, yeah, check him out. With Thievery, with Congo Sanchez, with Natural Selecta, and all the color red jams he's doing out there in Colorado. So, now we are going to shift into a short interview I did with the fellows, the fellows from Because of the Lotus. They are a projection mapping installation that I first found at Spirit of Swanee Music Park coincidentally and they made their way out to the emerald cup when i was there doing some podcast coverage um i sat down with those fellas to talk about their festy feud game show their uh sort of visionary art projection mapping project because of the lotus and uh yeah the difference between uh, the cannabis scene uh, that they were experiencing for the first time at the emerald cup and what they were used to back in the sunshine state of florida so shout out to my man mo angelo and uh his partner and because of the lotus uh, pat anglin the two of them were nice enough to chop it up with me for like 12-ish minutes so we're gonna play that uh just to kind of broaden our horizons here at the up for life podcast you know we're interested in talking to more than just the musicians 
Um, and these are some visual artists that have uh, very humble beginnings, like Mo with I Hate Radio. And uh, both those guys were kind of inspired by the spirit of Swanee to create what they're doing. So I wanted to show them some love, give them some shine and some airtime. So we're going to go into uh, the Because of the Lotus interview from the Emerald Cup in mid-December on the Up Full Life podcast with your host, B. Getz. And uh, then we'll do the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week and wrap it up for episode 11. Rest in peace, Jay Dilla. And we're live here at the Emerald Cup 2018 in Santa Rosa, California, with the Up Full Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and I'm here with the guys from Because of the Lotus. I'm here with Mo. Yo, B. And Pat. What's up, B? Happy to have you guys here and super stoked. Uh, for those listening, it was Because of the Lotus that was kind enough to invite me and Up Full Life out here to enjoy the uh festivities at the emerald cup and uh, the emerald cup is basically exactly what it sounds like it's a cannabis cup in california it's been going on for years kind of in the margins of the cannabis laws out here and now that it's adult use recreational legal uh official this is the first kind of like holy shit it's out in the open kind of uh, event and as such it's been a, a really astounding experience so Let's talk a little bit about Because of the Lotus. One of you guys want to just uh, maybe just explain to the people what the fuck it is. <laughs> it took us a while to figure it out. We're about uh, five years now, but we're an art installation that uh, started animating paintings with projection mapping. So combining fine art and digital art together uh, to make it... Uh, constantly changing colors or video effects happening and bring a painting to life and it's now grown over the years to incorporate biofeedback uh, which is using um, an EEG or other machines to tap into what the body is doing live and then able to apply those effects to the digital effects on the paintings so it's now become like a user experience uh, that Really, and, and now we've added virtual reality, so it's a constantly growing and morphing art installation. Wow, that's some like a state of the art, cutting edge <laughs> shit. We try, to, we, we try to keep up with technology and really work it in and, and constantly grow and, and just be adaptive. Yeah. How did you uh, actually just get involved in making this type of art? To be honest with you, it kind of found us. I mean, I, I studied painting in college, fine art, and Mo had a background with computers. You know, we both we both found each other through a mutual friend, Zach, Zach Deputy, who is a great friend of ours that kind of pulled everybody together. And we've been working together ever since, and we don't even know how we do what we do. It just kind of happens. Like, no joke. I don't even... It's so hard to explain it because it changes through us as we change. And, I mean, the purpose of it is to to help is is the reality though it's 
And we both studied psychology in college. And we both know how to deal with our certain things because we help each other out. And that's really what this is, is, is a team and a friend base. And we're just good at certain things. And by being together, we make really, really nice magic that helps people. You know, like they'll find themselves looking at the painting and not have to worry about something that's going on. And now we have the ability to show them their brain and explain to them what's going on, you know, and leave them with a piece of themselves that they've never known. For us, it's helping. <laughs> so uh, it's really exciting to give that back. And like the art and like the digital is the secondary to the magic that happens with the people that we help through it. You know, it's, it's really beautiful. And we're honored to be here at the Emerald Cup. It's mind-blowing you know being on the this coast and then seeing everything legalized it's crazy right so you guys i'm not from california i'm originally from south jersey philadelphia area um, i know you guys from florida Are you both from florida originally i'm from ohio originally moved to florida about seven years ago so now i'm in new smyrna beach florida and what about you pat well i grew up in new york but i've been coming down to florida for the past 15 years every winter so i have a winter home in florida and a summer place in new york and uh yeah first time here in uh santa rosa california it's crazy <laughs> yeah man so uh i first um encountered you guys at spirit of swanee music park uh yeah. mo he has been doing things there for a long time i know uh the i hate radio project you had and I've just been seeing your name around long before I met you, Pat. Um, how did you guys first start doing this at Swanee? Because, like, that's when I first started seeing them because of the Lotus, and basically that's what gave you the spark to kind of go here, there, and everywhere. So how did that start? Well, the, the Swanee's our home. Uh, Aura 2013 was the first one where I remember, uh, I love the story of Pat sitting down with Matt Begg and being like, hey, uh, we can make paintings move. And, and Matt's like, cool, you got some video? And Pat's like, no. <laughs> Matt Peck's a good friend of the show. I go back 15 plus years with Matty, so he's probably going to hear this. Yeah, so, so Pat just said, no, we don't have any video, but we can do it. And they're like, all right, so so they, they were the first festival to bring us on, and uh, we hit, we made it happen. SJP, we partnered with Jeremy, who uh, taught me how to projection map years ago, and so it was just this big Zach Deputy Swanee family. That's where Pat and I met. Was Zach's first disc jam. Um, both of us stayed in Zach's cabin, and uh, soon after that, at Bear Creek was when Pat first told me about the idea for Because of the Lotus, and initially i was doing i hate radio and i said oh, okay well i want involved this sounds amazing i'll just do media and promotions and it started there and then eventually took off into me learning the projection map and the whole nine figuring everything out it's it's we're, we're constantly they, they tell me my motto is we'll figure it out because we're always growing and always grabbing new things and, and uh, keeping going that's kind of a burner mentality just like bring it to the desert and we'll put it together kind of well, thing. Well, that's how, that's how, honestly, when Mo uh, and I create, we go off the ground, you know, and uh, he usually a little bit, I, I can't do that. Like, yes, you can, bro. You totally could do that. We got to just let you realize that you could do it because he can do anything. Like, you know, and that's the way we are. It's like, you can dream it, you can create it. You can think it, you can dream it, you can create it. Just like Chris Morphis says. <laughs> 
So he's, Mo said you came to him with an idea, so it was kind of conceptually your thing. Can you maybe explain what it was like in its infancy? What did you ask him or tell him at that time? Yeah, so it was, I mean, I studied fine art in college. I have a degree in painting and psychology as well. And basically when I got through art school, I decided to come to a festival scene and I met Jeremy, SJP, who we toured with Zach Deputy for a little bit. I was Zach's live painter. Um, and Jeremy and I went to a festival eight years ago and he goes, yo, look what I can, look at this. And we played with one of my paintings and, and we made it move. And it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen before any of this had really popped out. And uh, that was late leading to manifesting Aura. We really didn't have anything made. Nothing was created for Aura. We totally sold a, an idea and um, Dylan Endico joined us as well, and uh, we created a really large painting that's kind of like one of our staple murals, and it was a beautiful, oh, that was the OG, actually. Oh, my God, we painted Sewanee. We painted the river. And, uh, yeah, it's it's been a roller coaster ride, you know, ever since, and leading to here, California, you know, and this is incredible. We got to go to Puerto Rico a couple of years ago, paint a ceiling there, and... Uh, just an art basel like this trip is this this journey is really amazing and we're so grateful for it and appreciative yeah there's a whole world of this kind of art out here and and that's why i was so stoked to see spirit lake and see you guys in there because there's a lot of that out here there's lightning in a bottle symbiosis and so forth and those they like fresh ideas fresh basically like fresh blood a lot of the cats that are brilliant visionary artists have been doing it for a long time and people have kind of seen their thing and fresh ideas would be welcome so i'll see if i can't beat the drum and i can let the people know out here on the west coast yeah that you guys want to come back and, and uh, you know this is cool and we'll get to what you know last night's game show which is is what you're doing out here which is hilarious and we loved it um but like this is cool but there's a whole world like uh, spirit lake style sort of uh lawlessness then nobody tells you no you can kind of just go and set up and live and and festival if you will and it's not like roped off you can't go here or this and that it's a different way of doing it and i think that this kind of art lives there and i would love to see you guys get invited to one of those so we'll see if we can put it out into the ether and hopefully somebody is listening and uh was it down to take a shot what what is the because of the lotus like the name like maybe give people well, a so little it, understanding it was aura and um lotus was the headliner and we didn't have anything, like I said. <laughs> we, were, we were like, well, what's what's a cool sim, sim, symbolism of what we do? We grow in mud, you know, we get through junk, you know, we deal with our stuff, and we always blossom. It's like, well, Lotus is here. Dylan, Mo, and I are like, because of the Lotus? And it just sprung. I mean, like, that's it. Really, like I said, this whole project has created itself. We're literally instruments of something bigger coming, literally going through us as we perform. It's uh, it's it's cool, man. It's you know, like, like I, I get art, you know. Mo gets computers, and we get psychology. So that's the partnership. Is like you dream it up, and then you make it possible. And both, we both do our fair share yeah. of dreaming. Yeah, yeah. We, we 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 call it we call it team. Don't say no. Uh, a lot of times, but we're we're really open to exploring whatever ideas and, and things come through because it's like it's who knows what it's going to turn into type of thing and and all of what we already do came from crazy ideas that happen to work out somehow so 
uh, yeah, it's it's kind of our theme, you know. It's it's really neat to know that you know the the purpose while helping people and and everything is also just to be inspiring and let people know that you know take a shot if you have a dream you have an idea and and that's what's great about swanee did that for us and continues to year after year is be supportive and really make us feel like yeah man whatever you want to do do it it's going to be cool and, and and we'll make it happen as much as we can help you you know so and this this festival too the emerald cup was like literally the most supportive i've ever felt as an installation artist um even beyond like monetary or whatever but like being supported and helping get the things we need to make and how we had to fly in this was our first like flight gig to bring this stuff and do this and um yeah so it was awesome it's really cool to grow with installation art as an art form itself Absolutely, man. That's awesome. I didn't even consider the whole like schlepping everything out here and what that must have entailed. But real quick, before we wrap it up, you guys are doing a interactive game show while you're here. And uh, me and my lovely fiance Alicia were lucky enough to participate in said game show last night. It's called Festy Feud, and uh, it's based on the Family Feud. And uh, I just wanted to maybe ask if you wouldn't tell the people a little bit about how that came about. I know you did it at Hula, you did it here, and I think, again, it would be a hit at those like big transformational festivals. People would really love to participate. Um, what's that about? So, um, it's a collaboration with John Welton uh, from Ohio, John Welton and the Awakening, and he came to me with the idea, similar to Pat coming and saying, I have this idea, and I said, I think we can make it happen, but it was just an idea for a late night game show at festivals that would make people laugh, that could also deal with like some issues and things in a way that comes across as making people laugh. But, uh, you know, so we've taken Family Feud and applied it to festival questions. And um, like last night, one of the questions was, uh, name uh, an illness or disability or something that uh, cannabis helps with, you know, and some of the answers. My favorite answer for that was life slash everything. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's great. It's it's a really special way. We use projection mapping um, and, it, and there's the sound effects, the music, and John is a great uh, live improv performance host and just like cracking jokes on the spot and uh, it, it's, it's really exciting to see how that's going to grow we've got a lot of ideas for that too but yeah it's just another way to use these new shiny things to like pull emotions out of people and make them feel things and and provide an experience and a uh, uh, a co-collaborative experience and bring them into the whole thing as well who comes up with the questions oh man that's john pretty much john and Lindsay, they're great like they're they really put a lot of time into this. Um, we actually get to be ha- part of the test test dummies, you know? So we're like, you know, part of the guinea pig process. But they're probably out there right now surveying people. Like, they're literally walking around. As they say, we surveyed 100 people at a festival. This is the number one answer. It's real. It's like, okay, uh, yep, uh, 33 said this, uh, 22 said that, one person said this, which... And the one thing that that person says blows your mind is... Ketamine blow dart. (laughs) That was the one person answer last (laughs) night. One person said at Sewanee, they said, what do you... What was it? What's the smell of... What's the number one thing you smell at a music festival? It goes, sound? (laughs) Music. 
duh. And, and it's like, oh yeah, duh, you smell that music. Of course you do. It smells like rock and roll. <laughs> it smells funky, actually. It's hysterical. It's it's really funny, you know. And they're, 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 John actually is one of my favorite musicians, to be honest with you. Like, on a serious note, um, he k- kills it. And he'll be performing tonight, actually. We're going to close up and go see him. Um, but yeah, he, he's one of my favorite musicians. So this is like a fun thing on, on the side that it's cool to see see him, his personality come out. Right on, yeah. We had a great time playing, and I, I hope that you guys get to do that out here sometime. So yeah, man, we're going to uh, enjoy uh, some good music tonight. We got Sound Tribe, so it should be great. And uh, where can people check in with Because of the Lotus? Like, how do they find you online? Because of the Lotus.com as well as uh, at Because of the Lotus on Facebook and Instagram. Are they in YouTube as well? They're all at Because of the Lotus. And just Google will pop up all that stuff as well. Right on. Well, we want to say thanks from the Upful Life to Because of yeah, the Lotus. And thank yeah. you. And uh, thank, thanks to the Rustic Acre for getting us out here. Our, our boy, you know. Yeah, he got us. He got us. We, we really couldn't afford to come out here. So go see the Rustic Acre. It's in Colorado. Yeah. 420 friendly lodging, pet friendly. You know, and thank you, B. This was awesome. Where's that located? Estes Park, Colorado. Yeah, the rusticacre.com, I think, is their website. Yeah. But they're all over the place. And Jason, and, and they're just amazing. So, yeah, we wouldn't be able to do it without them. And thank you, sir, the Upful Life, for coming out and doing this. It's a huge, huge pleasure. Yeah, it's an honor. It's great to be out here. And hopefully uh, we'll get to see. Uh, they, they legalized medical marijuana in Florida. So first step. Um, and maybe one day we'll be... Uh, Having a cup of some kind in the sunshine, say the sunshine <laughs> cup. You should you should copyright that now. Love that, right? You better Love get that, that now. All right, this is B. Got signing off from the Emerald Cup Up for Life podcast, and we'll see you next time. Big thanks to Mo and Pat from Because of the Lotus for the interview at the Emerald Cup a couple of months back. Look them up. Check them out. They're all over festivals all over the U.S. We got big things on the horizon for Because of the Lotus. They've always been big supporters of the Upful Life. So, yeah, shout out Mo and Pat. Keep doing the damn thing. Doing it big. Well, despite my best efforts to the contrary, this is still a lengthy episode over two hours, so I'm going to cut it short. No lengthy explanations, just going to cut right into the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. Taking it back to 1995 on this one, I was pontificating with my man Excalibur Jones not long ago about the core essence of why this is a near-perfect hip-hop song. Uh, There are myriad reasons, but at the end of the day, it's a moment in time. It's one of Primo's finest slabs. Uh, Chub Rock kicks one of the illest verses, uh, definitely of his career and of the era, and 
Master Ace is Master Ace, but it is J. Rue, the damager. Bats third and goes yard with one of the more thorough verses, maybe in even hip-hop history, but the alchemy of all their contributions comes and uh, really coalesces in a way that has uh, not been uh, revisited or or eclipsed, in my opinion. So um, this is on the uh, metal podium for hip-hop songs, period, and is uh, just... Beyond words. So, shout out to Return of the Crooklyn Dodgers, 1995. Chubb Rock, Master Ace, Jay Rue the Damager, DJ Premier on the cut. For the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, episode 11 of the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. And we'll see you next time. Yes, indeedy.
crazy ass Brooklyn gets because it is survival of the fittest. Listen, cause for your mind, I got the right nutrition. We keep shit hard like fat asses in cases of Heineken. Here in Brooklyn, home of the warrior and villain. Trife type chicks, top villains. The anthem, rocks the smoke, marijuana. Enterprising businessmen shoot dice on the corner. Excuse me while I like my split, but some choose to sip. So bullets hit brains when bottles hit lips. Clips, whatever happened to 38 specials. Now it's Desert Eagles. Government issue, probably the same. Same one that killed Noriega Chips that power nuclear bombs Power my Sega Subliminal hypnotism and colonialism Leaves most niggas dead or in prison In Crookland right hand cuts off the left hand Despite the hand jealous of the next man So violent crimes black on black Plus mad crack the boot Everybody can't rap so most hustle and shoot Make money money get money take money I can't understand that concept Cause jobs everything around me Fire burns the unjust like arson Larceny melt MCs with mental telepathy with precision, we're slicing and dicing. Peace to the East, New York, perverted monks and Mike Tyson. <laughs> Crazy ass Brooklyn kids represent the Brooklyn all night. Crazy ass Brooklyn kids because it is survival of the fittest. Crazy ass Brooklyn kids represent the Brooklyn all night. Crazy ass Brooklyn kids because it is survival of the fittest.